I'm Scott Abraham from ABC7 in Washington, D.C. You know who it is. Travis Thomas Experience. This is Eric at home of Yahoo Sports. This is Mitch Tischler. This is Al Galdi, and you're listening to The Big Douglas Show. Play-by-play voice joins us today. Bob Carpenter is with us. Bob, how are you? Hey, Doug, doing well, and uh, good to be on with you today. Thank you for joining us. The season is officially over, and while I'd like to talk a little bit about the home team, uh, I'm curious to start out a little bit with you, Bob. You are from Missouri originally, is that right? Yeah, I grew up in St. Louis, uh, Followed the Cardinals uh, early in my life. The uh, St. Louis football Cardinals, St. Louis Blues were born when I was a teenager. I even remembered uh, my dad taking me to see some NBA games, the St. Louis Hawks, way back when, before they moved to Atlanta. So, uh, you know, great, great town to grow up in if you're a kid who loves sports. And, uh, you know, the University of Missouri, two hours away, so... Uh, we had a lot of different things to follow when I was a kid growing up in Missouri. Uh, it sounds like you uh, solved that also. My mom always calls it Missouri. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of interesting. We always thought that the people in the metropolitan areas, St. Louis, Kansas City, called it Missouri, and everybody else called it Missouri, maybe in the... Uh, the more rural areas of the state. And uh, it's kind of funny. I hadn't thought about that in a long, long time, but I, I, I think that's more of a rural versus urban thing. Uh, interesting. That would make sense. Her parents were from the farms out in the, in the Midwest there. Interesting. Uh, Bob, you've done soccer, baseball, basketball, even the Masters, if I did my homework right. Which one is the hardest, and which of those are, are the most fun to do? Well, it, it, as far as fun to do, Doug, it would be hard for me to rank them because I really enjoy everything that I do. Now, I have to say that there were some other sports I did earlier in my career because I needed the work and I needed the money. Uh, I didn't enjoy boxing a whole lot. I did some boxing for USA Network. Uh, never... I don't know. My dad was a big boxing fan, but I, it, it's something that just never appealed to me. I was always attracted to team sports. And uh, I got to tell you, though, man, going to Augusta three times back in the 80s when I was with USA Network and doing the Masters in 86, 87, and 88, uh, it was an absolute blast. In my four or five years with USA, I uh, got to go there. I got to go to uh, the great firestone country club in akron tpc down in sawgrass florida uh congressional for the old kemper open uh you know that was in the dc area uh that was a very cool thing to be involved in and uh, you know so i really enjoyed the golf uh, i did tennis for usa network and uh enjoyed that but it was never really uh something i was very passionate about uh, for me, baseball's always been number one. 
the way my career kind of worked out, college basketball was number two. I did 40 years of Division One basketball with the University of Oklahoma, the University of Tulsa, ESPN, USA Network. Really enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, didn't do a ton of college football, but I did the SEC on their syndicated uh, games back in the uh, early 90s for Jefferson Pilot Sports out of Charlotte. Really enjoyed that. College football is probably the hardest of all of them to prepare for just because of the sheer numbers of players and athletes involved and, and all the things that go into it. But having said that, there's only one football game a week. So you kind of prepare all week and then you build up to that, uh, you know, that sense of readiness by Friday and Saturday. So uh, I've enjoyed almost all of the things that I've done in my career with a, a very few exceptions. And I count myself very lucky that I've been able to do the things I have been able to, to do, have been given great opportunities from people who have, I don't know, maybe seen something in me, some potential that I couldn't see way back when. And, uh, and to do 37 years now of Major League Baseball, I just wrapped up my 37th year uh, when the Nationals finished up yesterday. So that's been a great honor. And maybe, I think maybe the greatest thing in my career uh, that I've been honored to do is to go to a major league ballpark every day for several different teams last 15 years with the Nationals and be considered a major league announcer. It's a great privilege to be able to say that. That first baseball job came with the Cardinals. That first year was with the legendary Jack Buck. How did that job come about? <clears throat> well, that was in 1984 with a cable network that was brand new in St. Louis called Sports Time Cable Network. It was a little bit ahead of its time by several years because it was a pay tier on cable. People weren't really used to paying for anything other than basic cable back then. Starting in 1982, I had done a lot of college football, basketball, soccer, some hockey, minor league stuff in Tulsa where I was living, and uh, the Cardinal job came about in 84. Well, suddenly they were asking people to pay more than they were already paying on basic cable to get major league ball games. And uh, the network lost a lot of money the first year. It was supposed to be a three-year commitment between the Cardinals and Anheuser-Busch, and they lost so much money in year one that the thing only lasted for one year. So here I was, 31 years old, thinking, hey, I made it to the major leagues after doing minor league baseball and a ton of other things and, and a lot of other sports for Anheuser-Busch Sports Productions in St. Louis. So I figured I had a pretty good deal going there. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm out of a job after one year as a big league announcer. But it was a great privilege. It was a great privilege to work with Jack. I was on TV. He was on radio with Mike Shannon, who's still doing the Cardinal games. And uh, Jack would come over and work the middle three innings with me on TV. Mike would work the other six innings, and we'd split up the play-by-play -play here and there. But, uh, you know, to sit there next to a guy who was one of my idols, uh, Jack Buck, for three innings during a game, it was a great honor. Uh, Jack treated me very well, very respectfully. Uh, he knew I was a rookie announcer. And, uh, you know, he'd put me on the spot here and there to see what I'd come up with or to challenge me a little bit. And I tried not to be intimidated by that. But uh, Jack was great to work with. I learned a great deal from him. 
And uh, when people ask me about the great Jack Buck, you know, it's just like a Cub fan growing up with Harry Carey, Dodger fan with Vince Scully, a Tiger fan with Ernie Harwell, all the other great announcers out there, Jack right up there with the best of all time. But the thing I tell people about Jack was every night when he signed off the game, you were sad. You wanted more. You wanted to hear Jack talk some more. You wanted to hear him, you know, call the game or do the scoreboard or the start of the game show after the game or whatever. And uh, I think that's the greatest thing an announcer can leave in his wake is that every day he wanted, he left the audience wanting more. And you can't really say that about too many guys. No doubt. In 84 that year, you created a scorebook that, as I understand it, is the most huge scorebook in the country now. How did that system come about? Yeah, as far as I know, it's the best-selling scorebook. I know there's some other things out there. And, uh, you know, more people now are, are using, you know, they're keeping score on their phones or on their laptop or whatever, and that's fine. But... Uh, to me, you know, there's still something special about filling out your own book, bringing it to the ballpark. And it's something all of us announcers do. We, I mean, we have to do it. Charlie and Dave yeah. do it in the Nats team, uh, in the radio booth, and uh, they use my book. And uh, I was doing my first, I don't know, maybe two months of Major League Baseball in a softball scoring, uh, scorebook that I bought at Bucks Sporting Goods in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I far as I know, or knew back then, there were no scorebooks out there. I think a gentleman named Gene Elston, who did the Astros games on radio for a number of years, I think if I remember correctly, he had a book out there, but I didn't know how to get it. I didn't even know where it was. You know, no internet back then. And so uh, I, I kind of thought, hey, you know, this is not, this is not getting the job done for me. So I had noticed the scorecards, the lineup cards that hung in the dugout and in the clubhouse that the coaches or the manager fill out for every major league game. So our manager was Whitey Herzog, the great hall of famer, fabulous guy. And I sure. went to Whitey one day in his office. and said, I said, Hey Whitey, um, this scorebook that I'm working with is a joke. I need to, I need to figure something out on my own can I have a couple of uh, blank lineup cards and take them back to the hotel with me so I can mess around with this a little bit? And he said, sure. You know, gave me a couple of cards. And if you're familiar with my card or anybody that is the broadcast version, which is an eight and a half by 11 page times two uh, on each page at the bottom of the page, there are the extra men, you know, the substitution guys, that are not in the starting lineup on that same page. There are the bullpen pitchers for, you know, the other team. And that comes directly from those lineup cards that Whitey Herzog gave me. Cause I'm thinking if I'm doing a game and it's the late innings, I really need to have that at my fingertips without scrolling down the stat sheet, who the guys are available. Are they left-handed batters? Are they right-handed batters? Are they switch hitters? Who might they be matched up against out of the bullpen, righties or lefties? And and that's really, uh, Doug, how I came about. I, I think I sat down in my hotel room that night with a pencil and a ruler, 
and uh, you know, looking at those lineup cards, and that's how I uh, laid out the uh, the grid originally for the scorebook. You know, tweaked it a, a number of times over the years. That book is now what uh, almost 40 years old, and uh, you know, we'll see how it goes from there. But that's how I designed the book with the help of Whitey Herzog, my manager at the time with the St. Louis Cardinals. Fascinating. You joined the Nets in 2006, is that right? Yeah, one year after they got to D.C. Right. How did you end up getting that gig? Well, um, I was with the Cardinals at the time, and I was uh, had just wrapped up 18 years with ESPN before that, uh, they did not renew my contract in 2005. So, uh, you know, I was doing about 50, 60 Cardinal games. I was doing 30 or 35 network games per year with ESPN. So I had plenty of baseball, had college basketball. Uh, but when I lost when I lost that ESPN job uh, in 2005, I was looking for a full-time TV job or or any baseball job. Uh, because as I said, the Cardinals, uh, you know, it was it was the over-the-air games. Well, those games were migrating their way over to cable, and my number of games was going down every year in St. Louis. So my agent, Alan Sanders, I remember this because I was in Stillwater, Oklahoma, at Oklahoma State the night before a college basketball game there. I was having dinner with my crew, and um, I got a call from my agent, and anytime you get a call on on your phone from your agent, it's going to get your attention. And he, uh, he called me that night. So I'm sitting in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And he says, Hey, um, it looks like there's going to be a baseball opening in DC with the Washington nationals. They're not bringing Mel Proctor back, who was the announcer for the Nats games with Ron Darling in 2005. And for whatever reason, the nationals had decided to make a change. Uh, Alan said, I, I've been in contact with them. I've told them how wonderful you are, which is what agents do. Right. Pardon me while I, pardon me while I cough partly in jest on that one. <laughs> but also, um, he said they have told me that they're interested, and can you come to D.C. maybe early next week for a face-to-face -face interview? And I said, absolutely, sure. I I had a year left on my contract with the Cardinals, but again, it was a part-time TV deal. It was not a full-time uh, baseball deal with the Cardinals. And my agent and I decided, you know, let's see what the Nats have to say. And uh, in fact, I didn't even know at the time their nickname was the Nats. They were the Nationals to me. That's, that's something I knew nothing <laughs> about. And so, um, you know, we decided let's see what Washington's all about. If they make us an offer and it looks like a, a, a pretty cool deal, we'll we'll get in touch with the St. Louis people and we'll we'll get that situation handled. So anyway, I flew to D.C. I actually flew into Baltimore. Uh, a car picked me up and took me to the warehouse at Camden Yards to the Mass and offices. I met with uh, Jeff Hallis, who was the number two man there, and um, it, it it went great. I spent about an hour and a half with Jeff. We really hit it off. It was fantastic. And Jeff said, okay, you're done here. Now we're going to put you back in that same car. And, and, and that car is going to drive you down to RFK Stadium in D.C. And you're going to meet with Tony Tavares and Kevin Ulick, you know, who were the top two guys 
uh, running the Nationals that time after they came from uh, Montreal. So I hop in the car, hour drive, they take me down to RFK. I meet with Kevin Ulick for a few minutes. And um, Tony Tavares, I mean, he was scrambling. I mean, it was the middle, it was, uh, it was late February now. And, you know, and they're starting a baseball season the 1st of April. So anyway, uh, I get in to see Tony. I spent a good hour and a half to two hours in there with him. I mean, he grilled me. It was the most intense but rewarding job interview I had ever had in my career. I mean, you know, usually when you're going for a job, there's 20 other guys who are finalists for that job. And if you get in front of somebody for a half an hour, you've done well. Well, this thing goes on and on and on. So um, Tony wraps up with me. He says, hey, uh, great visit. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and uh, we'll be in touch. So I go back outside. The, the car picks me up and takes me back to Baltimore, not to the airport, but back to the warehouse. Um because I have to meet with, you know, some more of the uh, Masson people up there. And, and that's kind of the way it happens. So that lasted into the evening, uh, a late dinner in Little Italy at Sabatino's there in uh, downtown Baltimore. And I, sp- I spend the night, I get, I get on the plane the next morning and fly back home. And about three or four days later, I hear from my agent and he said, uh, I was actually about ready to get on the plane uh, heading to Las Vegas to do a speaking engagement out there. And um, he says, hey, the Washington Nationals want to hire you as their TV guy. And I'm like, you're kidding. So anyway, long story short, again, which I'm, you know, keep, I'm trying to keep this short as I can. We get the thing worked out in St. Louis. I sign a two-year contract to um, to, to come to Washington and uh, do the Nationals games. They... Uh, they didn't want to offer me a two-year deal. They wanted to offer me a one-year deal, and I still had a contract in St. Louis. So we told them, "No, we're not gonna, we're not gonna leave a team that we've been working for for quite a while for a one-year deal up in D.C., even though it's more games, it's more money, and it's a full-time deal." So anyway, we talked them into a two-year deal, and uh, that was enough to get me to come to D.C. That was uh, 14 years ago. And I've just wrapped up my 15 season, so I guess it worked out okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, Doug, in this business, sometimes you interview for a job and you just know you're going to get that job. And it doesn't happen. It, it doesn't work out for whatever reason. And then when you're not looking for a job, something comes out of the blue. It blows you away. You manage to get yourself in front of the right people and they like you and they hire you. And that's exactly what happened with the Nationals. I, I, I did not have that job on my radar at all. I had no idea the job was even open. And uh, boom, I get the job, and now it's turned into a 15-year deal. Timing is an odd and interesting thing. Yeah, it's hard to figure out. It's hard to figure out in broadcasting. And, uh, you know, uh, I've always heard when one door closes, another one might open up. I am a firm believer in that because – uh, fortunately for me, uh, really by nothing I've done, that has worked out for me a couple of times. Was I ready for the opportunity when it came about? Yes, because I had worked hard and had done a lot of different things. And uh, it's just one of those crazy things about life and about broadcasting. 
that uh, things will happen when you least expect it. How long have you been uh, working with FP now? Uh, this is our 10th year. We just wrapped up year number 10 together. When they bring in a man like that, do they consult you at all? Or do they just say, you know, as the, as the guy that was already there, or do they say, you know, here he is, make it work? How does that happen? They say, here it is, make it work. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I assume. Uh, yeah, and you know what? I don't know that I would want to be the guy who decides if somebody else gets a job or not. I mean, that's, that's an awkward position to be put into. So um, uh, the, the, way F, the way I heard about FP was somehow he got hooked up with, again, my agent, Alan Sanders. And uh, Alan said, hey, I got this guy out in California. He's an ex-player. I don't know if you've heard of him. And I had heard of FP because I had called for ESPN. I had called a number of uh, Montreal Expo games over the years. So I was, I was fairly familiar with his career. I had never met him that I could remember, uh, you know, around the cage before a game or anything like that. But anyway... Um, he, he long story short, he got the job. He was on a radio show in San Francisco the night he got the job. Uh, they called me. They put me on the radio with him and I. We, we actually met over the phone live on a radio show that he was co-hosting out in San Fran. And uh, that's how that whole thing happened. And 10 years later, we're still partners. Tell us something that we don't know about FP Santangelo. <laughs> Well, that's a hard one because he, everything that goes through his mind comes out on the air. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. Yeah, I, I will tell you um, something that people do not know. Um, because, I mean, he, he wears it on his sleeve, man. I mean, what you hear is what you get. What you see is what you get. That's him in a nutshell. Uh, I would tell you that he has an amazing aptitude for the game. Uh, he's come up with stuff regarding the actual playing of a ball game uh, that I've never even heard of or considered before. So, I, you know, he has a very high baseball IQ. His feel for the game is, uh, is pretty impressive and sometimes even borders on amazing to me. And um, I think the fact... Uh, I, and th that's the thing about FP. He wears it on his sleeve. So it's hard for me to come up with something that our fans don't already know because I think they know him pretty well because, uh, you know, what you hear and what you see is what you get with that guy. When the Nets came over from Montreal, uh, they obviously struggled. Can you recall when you saw the turning point when the organization switched and started heading towards the long-term success that they've found? Well, I think, uh, you know, it, it's a mixed bag of what it takes for that to happen. First of all, you got to be pretty bad for a couple of years to get the draft picks the Nationals got. Because when they came from Montreal, Major League Baseball actually owned the ball club before it was sold to the learners. And thank God for Ted and Annette and Mark and his family, uh, you know, uh, really purchasing the team, getting the stadium built, which was in the plans actually before the learners 
uh, came in. The plans for the stadium uh, were already intact when the team uh, pretty much came from from Montreal. But, um, you know, you got to be pretty bad for a couple of years and you have to have bad records and you have to get high draft picks. And that's what the Nationals did. So I think if you had to pinpoint two things, for me, it was first the drafting of Steven Strasburg and then the drafting. And, you know, and of course, you got to come up with the money to sign those guys. But, uh, you know, the drafting of Strasburg, the drafting of Bryce Harper, and those were the two things that took the situation the Nationals were in and kind of turned it on its ear upside down that really and you know and it's not like everything happened overnight Doug I mean you know there were still growing pains there were still other things that had to be done and then of course Mike Rizzo uh, gets signed as the full-time GM uh, after you know being part of the process but not the main guy and so uh, those two things the bad records I mean, we were, you know, we won 59 games one year. We were winning 62 games a year. We were losing 100. We were losing 101 or 102. You know, those things are tough to deal with, but they get you great draft choices, and that's what really turned the thing around for the Nats. Bob, were you surprised that it took so long to get Rizzo re-signed? Hard question, because I'm not, on the inner circle on those things. Mark Lerner did pay a visit to our broadcast booth yesterday uh, to say hi to FP and I. He was uh, next door uh, taping a video. And uh, I, I saw him in there. They weren't started yet, so I just I ducked my head in there and said hello. And uh, we talked for a few minutes. And Mark said, hey, I'll be over to see you and FP here in a few minutes. Um, he explained that There are things that go into the signing of a manager and a GM that the public doesn't know about. And I think that's pretty obvious. But also, you know, there are other things that come into play. And Mark, I I don't think he was kidding us. I think he was having a little fun with us. But he also was, I think, kind of serious about it. He said, you know... Everybody was so bent out of shape about Davey not getting signed. Well, guess what? We got the deal done, and we got it on his birthday. Did anybody know when his birthday was? We thought that was a pretty cool thing, the way the whole thing worked out. So I don't know if that was the primary objective in that whole thing. You know, but Davey got signed. It was on his birthday. And really, it didn't take that much longer to get done after Mike signed his deal. And there was a process there. But when you consider that a good part of the front office isn't even at the ballpark every day, you know, a lot of people aren't there. They're working from home. There are T's to be crossed. There are I's to be dotted. And, uh, you know, yeah, it took a while. My reaction to that is, you know what? They got it done. Mike's got three years, I think. uh, Davey's got three years. What's the big hubbub about now? It's, you know, how long it took for whatever reason. It's something we don't have to talk about now. It's a moot point. They, they got the jobs. They're keeping their jobs. And I look forward to a great three years and hopefully more under both of those guys. 
Should there be any concerns for Strasburg's injury going forward? What do we know about that? And do you think that they would have pushed him back sooner if this hadn't been such a wonky COVID year? Um, well, I'm not a medical expert. I, I do know that, you know, uh, what do they call it? Carpal tunnel trauma syndrome, whatever that is. Uh, you know, it's it's something that's not a debilitating injury. Uh, now, for a pitcher in his pitching hand, it's something a little bit different. I mean, it's it's something that's a concern. But um, I don't know how that would have been handled if it was a 162-game regular season. I do think we would have been well into the season before that became known and that, that injury was suffered. So uh, I, I can't really address – and any announcer – who goes on any radio show or TV or whatever and speculates about injuries, unless he has some sort of medical background or medical degree, it's uh, it's an exercise in futility. I, I will just say that if there was anything wrong at all with Steven Strasburg and his ability to throw a baseball, I'm glad they shut him down. <clears throat> I'm glad that they're addressing it, <clears throat> that, uh, you know, He's going to be okay for the long term. That's the important thing. We got this guy for a number of years. He wants to be in D.C. his whole career. We want him pitching in D.C. his whole career. And uh, whatever it takes to make that happen, that's the corner I'm in. At the expense of some games this year, which maybe in the long run we're going to look back and say, you know, hey, Juan Soto won a batting championship. That's fantastic. We found out Luis Garcia can play at the major league level. We found out Andrew Stevenson's an exciting player who's, who may have some great days ahead of him. But given the 2020 scenario, we may look back and say, you know what, that season was for finding things out, but that season also was for getting a few guys healthy here and there. And uh, hopefully Steven Strasburg uh, has a long career ahead of him after he had to be shut down this year. No doubt about that. They let Rendon walk – do you think that at all was to make room to pay Turner and Soto? To your point, Soto's the youngest NL batting title. Uh, you think they'll try to get him extended early like the Braves did Acuna? Well, I think I think some of that money went to signing Strasburg, you know, to his extension. Sure. Uh, right. You know, and, and maybe you're right. Maybe some of that money, I, I'm not privy to how the team budgets this and that. You know, it, it's fun for us. On the outside, I know fans love to play general manager. I know they love to play manager. You know, oh, you know, last night's game, that's what I would have done. Well, you know, 2020 hindsight and all that. So it's not going to be cheap to sign Trey Turner. It's not going to be cheap to sign Juan Soto whenever those moments come. I mean, I'd love to see the Nats strike uh, you know, a shot across the bow and get one of those guys or two of those guys signed ASAP. You know, uh, Juan's still under team control longer than uh, Trey is. But, um, hey, when you're looking down the road and you see the kind of pitching we have and you see the kind of ball club we have and some of the young talent we have, I want Trey Turner and Juan Soto to be nationals for a long, long time and hopefully nationals for life. 
because those two guys are special. They are all-star players. They both have the potential to be MVPs. You can't look at too many ball clubs and say, hey, they've got a couple of guys who could be MVPs. I think the Braves have a couple of those guys. And uh, I don't think the Phillies have more than one of those guys. And so, you know, uh, in the division, uh, those are spectacular talents. So my, my bottom line is let's get those kids locked up ASAP and keep them for as long as possible. If I said that Corbin felt like an afterthought this year, is that unfair to him? Yeah, I think so a little bit. Um, yeah, I, I think that's un, unfair. Patrick pitched. He didn't pitch great. He pitched better than average. He had some bad luck. There was, there's always one guy on the staff every year that doesn't get the, the run support that some of the other guys do. And so um, I think Patrick falls into that category. And the other thing is, Doug, don't be hard on anybody because of 2020. Patrick Corbin's going to, we're going to, you know, we're wiping the, sl- now Max did end up with a winning record, you know, by getting his W on Saturday. And that was cool. 11 years in a row with a winning record. I know it was only five and four, but that's still a big deal. There are a lot of good pitchers who didn't win five games this year. So uh, wipe the slate clean. Um, it, for, for me, Juan Soto won a batting title. That's going to sustain me through the offseason. But for me, for just about everybody, I've taken that I've taken that, era- uh, that that chalkboard out, and I've taken the eraser, and I've erased pretty much everything off that chalkboard for 2020, and we're going to start all over, start anew, get some new players that will make the Nats a contending team. And uh, I think this team is still just about as good as anybody out there. A couple final questions for you. Do you think that Ryan Zimmerman and Howie Kendrick will be back next year? I think one of the two will be. Which one it is, I do not know. Maybe it's more likely to be Ryan. Uh, you know, Howie has Howie has older kids than other players do. His boys are like teenagers or about to be teenagers. So, you know, they got ball games. You know, they have activities. You know, Ryan's Ryan's little ones are still little ones. And um, I think Howie might be the one more apt to walk away. You know, and I was I was sad this year when Denard Spann didn't get a deal that he was comfortable with as a veteran player who still had some good baseball in him. I believe, I think how he falls into that category too, if he can stay healthy, but maybe because of the family situation, Howie is the more likely guy to say, Hey, you know, won a world series, uh, division series, MVP, our, our league championship MVP could have been the division series MVP as well, but they don't give that award. And, uh, how he might be the more likely of the two. Uh, I'd love to have both both of them back for the clubhouse and the character of the team, uh, but it's gonna it's gonna take a lot of good things to go right for that to happen. And finally, Bob, I thought maybe as we wrap up this season and look on to a new one, maybe you'd give us a couple of guys that ought to be called up for next year that we can look forward to. Well, Luis Garcia has already been called up. And I think he's our starting second baseman next year. Uh, Starlin Castro, of course, will still be around. 
So depending on what happens with Carter Keboom at third base, uh, because, you know, he did not have a very good season, but maybe 21 will be a lot better for Carter. He's going to have to show some things in spring training because uh, Castro can play over there. Josh Harrison figures into the mix. Uh, I think we've got a couple of good young pitchers to keep an eye on, uh, but both of, you know, some of those guys have either just been drafted or drafted in the last year or so. So I'll leave that up to Mike Rizzo. Uh, but we've already seen – I think Andrew Stevenson has made a strong bid to be part of the team. Now, he's been in the big leagues before. So, you know, I don't know of anybody down there who's a total mystery, who's not on the radar, who's going to be called up and be another Victor Robles or Juan Soto or Luis Garcia. That's asking a lot of any young player. But, uh, you know, we've already seen some guys at the big league level this year that maybe would not have uh, seen action. I think Kyle Finnegan – out of the bullpen is a great candidate to make the team. Kyle McGowan is definitely a guy that may be in the mix there. And uh, that's a lot of guys right there who we didn't know a whole lot about at the start of the season. And in some cases, we knew nothing about. Bob, this was so much fun for me personally. I could have done this all day. Thank you so much for coming on with us. Hey, Doug, my uh, my pleasure, my privilege. Uh, honor to be on with you. Thanks for having me on. And uh Maybe at the end of next season, we'll have a long conversation about a season in 21 that was a whole lot better for the team than it was in 2020. I look forward to it. Bob Carpenter, everybody.